I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Today on Say It Forward, you'll meet Freddie DeMann. He's the music industry's legendary manager who ran the careers of the biggest pop stars, Michael Jackson, Madonna, Shakira, Lionel Richie, and Billy Idol. Deal maker, extraordinaire, and master career manager, he's also been a film producer, a music executive, and was co-founder of Maverick Records. Since leaving the pop music world, he switched careers, moved to New York to produce some of the Big Apple's biggest Broadway show hits, including Hamilton and Dear Evan Hansen, which between them won 17 Tony Awards. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with our guest, Freddie DeMann. Doing research on you was quite an experience. Okay. So we found out lots of things about you, but we'd really like you to tell us a little bit about your point of view on today's music business, what you think about what's going on in this changing digital, you know, format that's going on, and, you know, a little bit about yourself. And you Well, pick, I don't know if I'm the guy to answer that question because I've been out of it for over a decade, and I haven't really kept up with, you know, the digital revolution and all of that. I can only comment on the days I was in it, which were phenomenal days. I once had a conversation with Jimmy Iovine way back, I don't know how many years ago, maybe 10, maybe 8 or something like that. And we talked about the absence of white rock and rollers. They don't exist anymore. And and you and I grew up, there's always rock and roll. Rock and roll was part of our life. Uh, And rock stars and rock bands and all of that. And they've been replaced by hip hop and, and, you know, black artists talking about their human experiences, which are the street and, and street cred and all of that. And that's wonderful. And, and, you know, white kids in Iowa follow that like a religion. That, that is one difference, one major difference. And of course, uh, technically, this it has enhanced itself a hundredfold with the use of digital recordings like we're doing now, I right. assume. I want to I want to kind of back up just a tiny bit because I'm, first of all, extremely honored to meet you, Freddie. And mm-hmm. after researching your career, uh, the only thing I can conclude is that you have a golden eye for talent because the people that you worked with, you, you manage the careers of people who can only be described as pop superstars, Michael Jackson, Madonna, Shakira, Lionel Richie, Billy Idol, and even one of my true favorites. Did you work with Dr. John? He wasn't yes, a, I did. He was not a superstar. Like, he's more of a cult, he sort was, of perennial he cult great. favorite. He was great. He's amazing. He's so, he so alive? talented. He, yeah, he's still yeah, alive. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he always tells people, Freddie was the only guy that fired me. <laughs> The only, the only manager that fired me. Fired me. Why'd you fire him? Mm, lazy, insolent, not, you know, on his game. Uh, you know, the band was always laid and I screamed at them and there was a lack of discipline and kind of stuff. You know, the other thing that you did, I mean, because you just said, I haven't been in it for 10 years. Well, the reason you haven't been in it for 10 years is you took your golden eye out again and you picked 
a whole bunch of amazing works for the theater, which uh, just knocked me right out. I mean, I would say that some of the stuff you picked reestablished Broadway after 9-11. Tony Award winning Proof, Pulitzer Prize winning Top Dog Underdog, Tony Award winning Spring Awakening, Tony Award winning Take Me Out, as well as West Side Story and A Chorus Line. There's probably more. How does that, like, how does that even happen? It's amazing. You're a good researcher. I'm, I'm a journalist. <laughs> um, how does it happen? Well, thank God. I, I think I have taste. And, Obviously. you know, I've, I've ingratiated myself in that industry. And why did I get into that industry? Um, when I lost Maverick Records, I had done the music business inside and out for all of my life, essentially, at that point. Uh, I made a movie, f well, actually, that was in the OOs. I made a movie, uh, The Life and Death of Peter Sellers for Loved HBO, it. Mm -hmm. and it won, uh, I think, Emmy. nine Emmys and two Golden Globes. But, but I was bored and restless, and the only thing I hadn't done in show business was theater. And as a kid growing up in New York, there was always a proximity to theater. So I, I wanted to do it, and, you know, uh, you ingratiate yourself into the industry and then people call you and, you know, hey, would you like to be involved in that? I came in with an idea and I met with this lawyer named John Brelio, who later became a producer. And of course, that idea that I walked in the door with still hasn't been done. Um, and that oh, was wow. about 15 years ago. Uh -huh. But in the meantime, I occupied myself with identifying what I thought was great yeah. pieces of theater. I see parallels, too, between the acts that you managed and the sort of theatrical just in general. It's like you were always in theater in a way because of the nature of the acts that you supported. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like how much did you influence it? How... Involved, did you get? Well, there was a book that I thought was amazingly interesting by Roger Lewis. And um, when I pitched it to HBO, I said, This is the story of the fine line between genius and madness. Yeah. And that conflict has always appealed to me in everything. So the artists I chose in, in music and rock and roll were interesting artists or conflicted or, or, you know, had issues, but there was genius in their madness. And, um, and that's what appeals to me. I'm not exactly a vanilla guy. Yeah. Um, you walk towards the sort of difficult people in difficult yeah, situations. Yeah. yeah. Why you, is that? What, what, where does that come from? Maybe the need to beat myself up or, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably has some to do with it. And I'm just magnetized to those people in life and in, in, in the arts. People who you uh, just describe as geniuses and madnesses with a slash, do those people have similar personality traits that allow you to manage them? Are yeah. You, it must, must require a very interesting skill set to deal with somebody who is like that. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's a weird comparison maybe between Michael Jackson and Madonna, but both were absolutely on their game when I managed them. And uh, Michael sadly got off his game after that. But you have to have a motivated artist and a smart artist. What is a smart artist? What does that mean? With good gut instincts, good street smarts. I, I once said that an artist's ability to overcome their need to self-destruct. Wow. And that is a big wow. statement. Wow. That is a big statement. And all artists have this need to self-destruct. And maybe there's something of that in all of us. So 
that need to self-destruct, how present is it? We can all name the artists that self-destructed before their time, you know, from Janis Joplin and Morrison, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, that made rock and roll unbelievably interesting in those days. And as you pointed out, it doesn't happen today. And maybe it is the lack of drugs. I don't know. But um, uh, it was seemed to me there were more interesting people then than now. I think that in today's day, the an example of that, and I don't know him, so I don't know whether or not I'm right or wrong about this, but you see they found this kid, Justin Bieber, when he was like 13 or 14 years old, and he's pretty much done everything he can to self-destruct. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know whether he's involved with drugs or not, but he clearly was pulled out of some kind of, you know, talent pool and put forward at such a young age and didn't have a good parental support system. And a lot of the artists that I've read about, for example, in your case, I would use Madonna, did not seem to have a good parental support system. Her mom died early. Her father didn't approve of what she was doing. She was raped in New York, again, based upon her own story. She told us on the Howard Stern Show, came to New York and got raped by some guy. So she clearly had a difficult beginning. And I don't know whether or not that overlapped with you and your experiences with her. But when you read about her history, a lot of these people have the same thing, difficult beginnings. Have you experienced that with the, some of the people that you've touched? Michael Jackson's another example of that. I mean, yeah, his father was... absolutely. He was raised in a very fearful environment, and I don't want to go too far and say he feared for his life, but, I mean, he he was constantly barraged by his father and uh, had other issues. And, uh, and also, you have to go back to the great old blues singers, rhythm and blues singers, and you hear and you feel the pain in their voice. Mm-hmm. It comes from a lifetime of pain, and from that pain comes genius sometimes. It's also said that in, in the most difficult times, great artistry comes out. And when things are peaceful and things are fine financially and the country and the world is going along, there seems to be a lack of artistry, a lack of poets. I don't know if that's absolutely accurate, but it seems so. I mean, Bob Dylan came in the turbulent 60s. Right. And also the way that these people change with fame is something that seems to be hard to manage in many cases. Well, yes and no. I think the Artists that don't know their own mind are more difficult to manage. And I don't want to mention names. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, the ones that know, I mean, Madonna and I never had a very long conversation. It was, you know, our phone calls were brief and to the point. And I would say, you know, let's do this and this and this. She would get it instantly done. Uh, and vice versa. It wasn't a matter of explaining it. Well, explain it to me again. I, I don't understand or anything like that. That's difficult. So, you know, she was a tough gal, but she was a great, I always called her a great dame, D-A-M-E. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The care that you took of Madonna when thing, when she got low, 94, she had been going for a while and, and things sort of turned, the worm turned a little bit for her for a second. And it seemed that you and her brother really kind of surrounded her and um, also Liz Rosenberg kept faith around her. And it t- can you talk about well, that? Well, she, she had her team. Yeah. And, you know, just like uh, Obama had his team and any president has a team and you depend on your team to get you through thick and thin. And uh, uh, I think that's what it was. And she had a good team. Madonna did. 
you know, I think she trusted her team, which is important. Michael Jackson sometimes didn't trust his team. In, in your management of Madonna, what, were you ever aggravated by external forces? Like I know Dino De Laurentiis, you know, basically took her book and tried to use it to sort of pump up a movie that he made. And it just seemed like... Well, that was uh, that was the, the low point of her career. And aggravating me, would it, that's the understatement of all time. Because, um, well, first of all, that was also a time that Madonna and I severely disagreed. And I was not a fan of that book, as it turned out. I thought it was not erotic, even though it was called that. And I thought the people in it were highly unattractive, and I just didn't like it, and I wasn't in favor of, of releasing it. But, you know, that's when she wore a gold tooth in her mouth, which I thought was, again, where where, where are we going with that, and what's the point? She did a, a rather controversial video, and she did this movie, Body of Evidence, where she fucks her husband to death. And I just Wrong thought stuff. that that was three things in a row— that were extremely bad. And, um, and I, I said to Dino, look, it's not going to help you to put this out, the film, the book, uh, the video. It just doesn't work. Why don't you delay the release of the book for six months and this will blow over and we'll be fine and we'll have a hit movie? No. And he did, he released it and that was the nadir of her career. Mm -hmm. the, the public rejected her at that point. And mm -hmm. it, was, it was difficult to come back. Mm -hmm. Must be very hard to manage that as well. You know, this was a girl riding on this on every possible wave, not having any things that you would say at that time were downturns. Right. And all of a sudden she had a downturn and wasn't as popular as she was. So I remember that. I remember exactly when that happened. And I remember people coming in with copies of her book and they were all, look at Madonna. Look, And she was with uh, the, I forget the name of the basketball player. that Yeah, yeah Dennis Rodman. Was Rodman. And I thought, who thought this was a good idea? I mean, what kind of an idea was that? And it didn't make any sense. And clearly you were right. I mean, clearly not doing that would have been a better decision than doing it. Yeah. Do you think for her it was like a post-feminist thing? Because it seemed, I agree with you, it was not sexy. It was almost like she was having it off commercially with people. She was trying to kind of see how far she could push it. And it was post-feminism, or at least that's the way I perceived it. I was not long out of college when that mm. book came out. And I was like... How, how does this make sense? The only way it makes sense is sort of a post-feminist statement. Do you think there was that much thought given to it? Or what do you think was driving that? I never did look at it as a feminist or not feminist, although I'm sure you have a very good point. Um, I'd have to say now she was the Kim Jong-un of her day. You know? <laughs> All right, I want to fire one more rocket and we'll see if these guys do anything. That's yeah, so yeah. interesting. It also seems to me that the period of time that you were a manager and involved in the music business was, to my taste, the best time to be in the music business. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, what goes on today in all these digital songs, I don't think that any of these people that exist today, with the possible exception of, you know, the obvious one would be somebody like an Adele, where you hear her today and you can imagine listening to her 20 years from today. Right. But you can't imagine, I can't imagine listening to any of the people that I hear out there today, 20 years from today, that their music will stand the test of time. And everybody that you were involved with had music that will stand the test of time. And which, which comes down to, it's all about the song. Right. You, know? you have to create a great song and it's the music that, 
you know, fills everyone's soul. Yeah, that you play over and over and yeah, over again in yeah. your head and you bop around to it when you're in your car, you know, singing at the top of your lungs. So those are, those are the times that when I think about that business and look back, but even the music that I hear my kids play today, a lot of it is music that sounds reminiscent to me of those times. Yeah, I, I once had a discussion again, uh, I don't want to drop names with Jimmy Iovine, and he said that music was all about the beats, and obviously, in the new music in the digital times, uh, and Dr. Dre perfected the sound, the amazing sound of Beats, um, and then, of course, went on to create the Beats headphones and all that. But I'm talking about musically. Um, and I always thought it was melodies. And mm. frankly, Michael Jackson taught me that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a meeting in Paris about a year before he passed, and... Uh, the last thing he said to me as I was leaving his hotel suite was, uh, Fred, you better tell your girl she forgetting about melodies. Um, <laughs> well, he obviously wow. was referring to Madonna, and this was about, what, 90? No, this was in the 2000s. Two, 2008 or yeah, something uh -huh. like that. Um, because Madonna was going into, you know, making these digitally enhanced and rhythmic, all about the rhythm and all about the beats. And there was an absence of melodies and they weren't hits. Right. What a tragedy for, to lose Michael Jackson. What a talented guy. Oh, he was brilliant. He was just a very misunderstood human being. Yeah, but I'm not sure he understood himself. Right. Let's talk about you. So your <clears> life today, you live part-time in Los Angeles. You live part-time in Connecticut. What's interesting to you today? I know you're involved with a new play on Broadway. And um, as we've already mentioned, you're having great success with your experiences there. Well, um, in terms of uh, Broadway, I'm involved in two of the hottest, the two hottest shows on Broadway, which is Hamilton and a wonderful new musical called Dear Evan Hansen. Um, which is phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal in terms of the book, in terms of the music, in terms of the acting, the directing. It's phenomenal, and it's a must-see for anyone and everyone. Now, um, we had a brief conversation that you told me uh, doesn't ruin the play, and uh, I read about it in the New York Times review of the play. Can you speak a little bit about that and what the premise of the play is without giving away the the grand finale? Well, it's about a 17-year-old uh, boy, high schooler, who's, you know, just doesn't fit in and is very uncomfortable. And I think that alone, most people can identify with because I think we're all very, those are very turbulent, uncomfortable years, your, those teen years, because everything is changing uh, in your body and mind. So he, he can't find himself. And um, another student, the uh, school bully, you know, pushes him down and uh, he, ha he has a cast on his arm and this guy signs it in big, bold letters and um, turns out that this town bully also has obviously issues and he winds up killing himself. And his parents find a letter that Evan Hansen wrote to himself and they think that their son, that he wrote it for their son and therein begins a misunderstanding he tries to placate the family and help them feel better about their loss. And he keeps getting in deeper and deeper into this original lie, which was intended to be quite innocent. It's very poignant. It's very, very poignant. It's a happy musical, but some 
wonderfully poignant moments. I guess I forgot to mention that Evan Hansen goes to a shrink and a shrink has him as an exercise, write a letter to himself every day. So he always begins, Dear Evan Hansen, today is going to be a great day and here's why. Mm-hmm. And of course, he can't go on from there because he doesn't know why. I think so many teenagers can identify with that. You have had such an incredible career. What I mean, what is the ratio of hits to misses? Well, I don't know, but I'd like to think, you know, I'm uh, the Sandy Koufax. Of, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Pretty damn good. <laughs> now, you're a legendary deal maker. Uh, we spoke a little bit about this um, earlier today where you get honorable mention in the book about uh, the agencies. Can you speak a little bit about that? There was no question about where my loyalties were, and I never sold out any of my clients. Maybe my competitive nature, I always wanted the best deal. And uh, when I talked to the agency about what they were going to get for a particular tour, I would always question, well, who got better? Who, you know, why can't we get more? I always believed, and and by the way, I was unsuccessful in this. I always believed that if a, a big artist like a Madonna or a Michael Jackson filled the, uh, in those days, the Forum or Madison Square Garden uh, for several days, that we should get a piece of uh, the parking. We should get a piece of the uh, concession. We should get a piece of everything. Otherwise, the building would be dark and nobody would would be at work. I never did win that argument, but there were several that tried. Billy Joel at Madison Square Garden, who continues to sell out, sell it out for as long as he wants, I don't believe got that deal. Why did you get a no to that? It would seem to me that you should have won that because deal. Because, yeah, I should have, but Madonna didn't tour enough in those days. She would do a three-month tour or four-month tour mm-hmm. uh, every three years or something like that. So I, I really didn't have enough juice but in the case of Billy Joel, he he toured, t- still tours more often, does big business in these buildings, and as far as I know, still doesn't have that kind of a deal. Were you uh, a pioneer in trying to negotiate that? I would think I was. But. Yeah, it seems like a if I owned the forum, which I don't, but if I owned the forum, if I were king, that would seem to be a reasonable thing, even if they took up the price of the parking by Let's make this right. up a dollar right. to give to your artist. They, they, nobody would have not parked there. That's right. And your client would have gotten, right. you know, I, I think a couple it's eminently fair more. that the artist, you know, share in that uh, revenue stream. How did you get into managing? I, that was one thing when I was researching. I could not find anything out about you before the artist management part of your career. Well, I was at Electra Asylum Records in the. Uh, middle 70s. I I wanted more out of my life. And by the way, I had a kind of a very topsy-turvy career prior to that. I had some good years and some very bad years and very broke years. All in the music industry? Yeah, in the music industry. From the very beginning of your career, you were in music. Yeah, so there were some bad times. The Electra years were good years, Electra Asylum, and I wanted more. Um, But I knew I wasn't going anywhere within that organization. There was a lot of people ahead of me. I was never going to be president of that company or anything like that. And simultaneously, two artists from my past called me. One was a, an R&B artist named ZZ Hill, um, who I I think I produced a record when I was with Kent Modern Records. And I always liked him and he liked me. And he, he called me and said that he wanted me to manage him. 
He said, well, you said you wanted to manage me. I said, I said such a hip thing. <laughs> you know, are you kidding? Uh, where did that come from? All right. And then people I worked with when I moved from New York to L.A., Dot Records, I was very friendly with them. And they had on their label Tanya Welk, who was Lawrence Welk's daughter-in-law. And she was on his show every week. And she was very cute and perky and sang and great. And they said, we want you to manage her. And I said, where is this coming from? I'm not a manager. <laughs> and they said, well, we know you. You will do a better job than anybody else. Hmm. Okay. And I went to see her in a club that she was working. And I said, wow, you know, she's great. Uh, she was a good singer, didn't have a great sound, not the most commercial. She was great. But I, I never truly believed that she could have hit records and, and that career. But I always believed that she could be a huge television star. And that's what I went after. And uh, we did a pilot. It didn't go. Mm -hmm. I tried and tried and tried. And uh, it actually, you know, we did okay, but she never had a hit record. And, uh, and I never got her a TV series. So I'm sorry about that for sure. And ZZ, I said, well, we're going to have a hit record. And then we'll go on tour and, and there'll be cash flow for all and everything will be great. Well, we did have a hit record, but it never went pop. It was R&B. And to my dismay, nobody cared about touring him. So it was very, very difficult. And from those early, early days in my management career, that that's that's how I got into it. You know, probably no one else in their right mind would have left what I would say is a cushy job to go into such an unknown, such as the management business, with artists that are, you know, not certainly not household names. But so, you had an eye. I think I do have an eye, an ear, and what's more, a feeling, just a feel. And I see things before other people see them. I think that um, in our past conversations, if I recollect correctly, that you came across Madonna when she was very young. Yeah, she was young. She was beating around New York. Was she with Jelly Bean Benitez at the she time? She was with Jelly Bean, but she was with an, another manager. I forgot her name, and she parted ways with her. I believe she fired her, and and the woman, I'm told, punched in a wall. She was so pissed off. Seymour Stein, my friend Seymour, who owns Sire Records, called me in Los Angeles and said one of his uh, artists are shopping. For a manager, I was offended. Shopping, one of my Gelsons, you know. Um, <laughs> and I said, nah. And, and by the way, I had Michael Jackson, and we had the number one single and number one album in the country week after week after week after week. That was an ascendancy like no yeah. other. I mean, he so was high I said and then he went to, to this unknown, you know, I don't know who he's talking about. I said, no, nah, I don't feel like taking a meeting. And oh, Freddie, <laughs> do me a favor and do yourself a favor. This one's going to be a star. And she walked in the door. Well, I thought it was a rock band. I don't know why, but I associated him with bands because he had signed many bands. And I asked him, well, what's their name? And he said, Madonna. I assumed that's a you know heavy metal band or something. <laughs> um, and I wasn't looking forward to the meeting, but she uh, was overwhelming. She just sucked the air out of there. She was a, a force of nature when she walked into the office. So interesting. Now, if we can go back a little bit. So you were working at Electra. What were you doing before that? Well, I was mainly in my record business career a promotion man, which meant getting records on the radio. That's how I started. Were those the days of pay to play? You could say that. They but, were, I mean, right? I got my records played without paying a lot. Right. 
That's for sure. I remember there being big stories around your time starting about in order to get somebody on the radio, you had to pay the station to play these, the music of whoever the talented person was. I think that's probably overblown, you know, but I mean, that it did exist. I'm mm-hmm. not telling you it didn't, but... Uh, that's a tough game, though, going out and around trying to get radio stations to play whoever, without, especially if they're not known, and saying, hi, could you please play my artist single? Well, again, I think you as the guy pushing records should have an ear and know if something's going to be a hit. Right. Because if it's not, a, and, and it's the, the fellow who is taking the money, um, if he puts a, re- a record on the radio that isn't a hit, he's going to lose listeners and therefore his ratings go down and and it's a vicious cycle. So I think each part of each person on each side has to have some A, discipline, B, taste, and know what's going to be a hit because if you just – there were a lot of guys that didn't know the difference of an A side or a B side. And if they put records on the air because they paid a few bucks and it wasn't doing well with the listener, it's bad for everybody. Right. So your your taste level, your ability to know whether or not so, something yeah, I, was – So, yeah, I knew yeah. then which records to work and which records to kind yeah, of – Yeah, when you, um, When you're looking at prospective projects now, the theater projects, film projects – what do you think is the thing that immediately makes you say yes? Like, what what do you what are you looking for? Well, I've been saying no for a long right, time. Right, right, right. You said that earlier. No is the most important thing. But what is it? Well, regarding an artist or regarding theater? Regarding or, a theater uh, project, because you're more in that space now. Yeah. The old saying, you know, the play's the thing, um, is is very true. And it's, again, a song, a great song is the same as a great, uh, stage play or screenplay. You need that's the spine. That's the beginning. If you don't have that, you ain't got nothing. I always read scripts, and I, if it's a musical, which now nowadays I really prefer, it's about the songs. But it's about the book. It's about the story, the script, and you know, yes, it matters of who's who's in it and is there a star attached to it and all of that. But it all begins. You can have the biggest star in the world if they're made to say stupid things, nobody's going to yeah. come. So are you seeing works that are in workshop that are have stars attached to them? Or sometimes, are you like what's not. It? Okay, so it's kind of all over the yeah, yeah. all over the board. Can we go back a little bit? What was the impetus for you to exit being a manager? And was the career moment that made you stop doing that and then the period of time that made you start doing Broadway? Well I was already doing Broadway. Oh you were they were overlapping? Yes. What was your first Broadway? Proof. What a choice. Wow. (laughs) Maybe I was getting tired. Maybe I was, you know, uh, frustrated. Maybe this. But Shakira was the last client that I managed. After that, I said, I I have to hang it up. You'd had enough. Yeah. Do you find it to be something that you have good feelings about that period of time? Do you have remorse about having left the business and gone on to doing what you're doing now? Well, I miss the action and uh, the constant, just an unbelievable fire in my belly. The everyday action was phenomenal. And I was, uh, I'm a, an action junkie and uh, I kind of needed it. Now that I'm away from it and I made the conscious decision to get away from it, was it a mistake? Yeah, I think it was. But I don't think I could be a manager. I'd have to find something else. It's like being a babysitter. Yeah, I'm not going to be a guy that, 
you know, develops a new app or, uh, you know, finds a solution to uh, the steel business or the coal business or anything like that. That's not who I am. I'm a showbiz guy. I'm happy about it. I'm proud of it. Creative release of finding things uh, uh, for theater or or writing or co-writing or, you know, nurturing something from scratch always appealed to me. And so that's how I get my creative rocks off. There are a lot of differences today in the music business than there were when you were in it. Yeah, it's, it's it's a different business, but it's suddenly I, I see signs of it coming back to the old business. In what way? Well, I just read that uh, Irving Azoff is buying uh, a couple of magazines, and uh, uh, it seems to me that it's kind of maturing again and becoming larger again. But I think that's going to be like a ten-year process, and I can't tell you that I'm going to be uh, jumping around like a. Jumping bean and <laughs> I may be pushing grass from underneath, you know. Do you ever tiptoe back into helping individual artists with just with your advice and your experience, even just guiding them to no. have any no connections at all? No, I, I, no. I don't think I can do it. No. I was recently, I met a, a young lady and I think she's very, very talented. She was brought to me and, uh, and I thought I would do it. I thought mm-hmm. I would go back to it. And I found myself just... It's, no, I, I don't want to do this. I mm-hmm. Really, it's going against the grain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to start a new record company, uh, I think I got off the merry-go-round and uh, I think it's very hard to get back on. I think I'm a beat behind and I don't want to, I don't think I'd be doing anyone a service. When you look back on your life, do you have any real regrets? Probably that I'm not as rich as David Geffen. <laughs> <laughs> he has uncanny timing, doesn't he? He's the genius of geniuses. What do you think your high points were? What did you really, when you look back, you go, ah, oh, that was great. Well, one of the high points was uh, Madonna in uh, Paris in 1987 when we played an outdoor park called Parc de Sceaux. And 125,000 people oh. came. Oh, my God. 125,000. That, that must have been unbelievable. Uh, just an Un, that was an out-of-body experience, you know, and it was amazing. That's amazing. I can only imagine, right, standing oh. behind stage and seeing 125,000 people Just standing Just as a human being, to be on that side of the equation of a moment like that. Yeah. And yeah. I had to go around, you know, to make sure things were all right before the show. And I took a little motorcycle because to walk all the way around would have taken too long. So uh, that was the mode of transportation before the crowds came. What a moment. Yeah. Well, it's been an absolute honor having this time with you, really. Well, thank you. You are a lovely man, a dear friend, and a legendary music producer. Seriously. Thank thank you you so much, Freddie. Well, thank you, ladies. Mm -hmm. It was a pleasure. Next on Say It Forward, you'll meet Gavin McNeil, a.k.a. Mizzle. From Minnetonka, Minnesota, to South Central Los Angeles, to Beverly Hills High School, his journey reads like an out-of-body experience. He's a self-taught graphic designer and creative director with a passion for impacting culture and thought-provoking art through products and experiences. He started his creative career using his talents to promote youth culture in Los Angeles under the moniker Just Be Cool. Whether it's managing artists or branding products, 
His hard work has made him into an inner-city entrepreneur with an unusual and exciting career that encompasses music, fashion, and design. So join us when we rewind to the beginning with Gavin Mizzle-McNeil on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 